This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for real life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, come and join us at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash community. Thank you and happy listening. Well, thank you, Rasnikosha, for those words of introduction. And thank you, everybody, for the warm welcome. I always seem to get a warm welcome when I come to the, to the LBC. I'm not quite sure when I was here last. I'm not quite sure when I last uh, spoke to you. But I think it must have been uh, rather more than a year ago. And in the course of this last year, Quite a lot has happened. Quite a lot has happened in the world. Quite a lot has happened in the FWPO. And quite a lot has happened, I might say, in my own uh, life. One of the things that has happened, I think one of the most important things that has happened for me personally is that I have at last finished the volume of memoirs on which I was working. In the course of the last year, two years, three years, people have often asked me, have you finished your memoirs? And I've had to say, no, not yet. But at last I can say, yes, I have finished them. I have finished writing them, or rather I should say I've finished dictating them because the last ten chapters have had to be dictated uh, for reasons uh, of which most of you, I think, are aware. So yes, they're finished. And uh, Wintour's Publications is hoping to bring them out um, by August of next year. Uh, this is, of course, in a way by way of a little trailer, one might say. <laughs> uh, perhaps I could also mention that the, the title of this new volume um, is, unless the publishers decide otherwise, Moving Against the Stream. Hmm? Moving Against the Stream. And uh, it covers the period from August 1964 when I returned to England after an absence of 20 years, up to April 1967, when the FWPO was founded. And it covers, I would say, quite a lot of ground. Someone asked me recently whether there were any particular themes which emerged from the memoirs as far as I could recollect. And I had at first to admit that there were no particular themes which I thought emerged. I had, after all, been working on the book on and off for some five years, and it was difficult for me to get a sort of overview of it. But there was one, there was one theme which perhaps I, I did see as emerging, and uh, that was the fact that after 20 years in the East, mainly in India, I was re-engaging, reconnecting uh, with Western culture. Because 
even while I was in India, I was keeping up my contact to some extent with uh, English literature, with history, and so on, and of course I was writing poetry. But I didn't have any opportunities to see any examples of uh, Western visual art, and of course I didn't have any opportunities of um, hearing Western <coughs> classical music. But once I got back to, 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 to England, I started re-engaging with, with Western culture. And especially I re-engaged with it in the course of the, the tour I made in '66 um, in the company of a friend, uh, a tour, first of all, of Italy and then of Greece, which was a very rich experience for me and about which I have written uh, at some length in this volume of memoirs. Some of you may remember that I've read portions of those uh, particular chapters to you uh, a few years ago. Hmm? Um, but not only that, not only was I re-engaging uh, with Western culture, um, I was also having to present the Dharma in terms accessible to a Western audience. Um, in India, of course, I had been accustomed to addressing Indians brought up in, in their very distinctive and rich and ancient culture. Um, some people, of course, were, were westernized, western educated and versed in western culture, but the vast majority were not. In fact, um, many of those whom I addressed had very little higher culture at their disposal at all. So I was there addressing a very different sort of audience from the sort of audience that I was uh, having to engage with and to whom I was having to make Buddhism accessible in the West. And I, I started, uh, as you were, presenting the Dharma in somewhat different terms. The fundamental principles, of course, uh, did remain the same. The fundamental principles of the Dharma, they were the same whether I was lecturing, teaching in India or in England or, in fact, in any other part of the world. But there was that difference. There was that, that um, theme, at least, emerging in the course of the volume of re-engagement in these different ways with Western culture, which, of course, was to be of importance for the future of the FWBO. There are also a few sort of story threads in... Uh, in this particular volume. Story threads such as uh, the way in which I related to the existing Buddhist organizations. At that time there were only two in London, in fact really only two in Britain as a whole. And on, on my arrival, at the time of my arrival, they'd been at um, loggerheads for about a year and weren't on speaking terms. And one of the threads of this volume is uh, an account of how I tried to bring together these two Buddhist organizations which had been in conflict for so long. Another important thread, of course, is the development of uh, one of the most important friendships of my life, and that story I have told in some detail. So this, this volume, beginning in and ending with the formation of the FWBO in 67 uh, covers this sort of material 
this sort of ground. Now, some of you who've read my previous um, volumes of memoirs uh, may, may come up um, with a question. Um, you may recollect that the previous volume of memoirs ends in 1956-57, um, the Buddha Jayanti year. Whereas this volume, Moving Against the Stream, begins in 1964. So what about that intervening <coughs> period? Well, for that intervening period, there is no volume of memoirs and it's probably unlikely that I shall be able to fill in those missing years myself for various reasons. But all is not lost because that missing period has been filled in to some extent by my old friend Contipalo in his book Noble Friendship. Contipalo arrived in India from, uh, from England in 1959 and uh, he met me, he came to see me in uh, 1960 with a Thai who was a great friend of mine. Kantipalo had been ordained as a Shramanera or novice monk in London about a year earlier by a Sri Lankan bhikkhu who was another old friend of mine. And on his, on his, on Kantipalo's arrival in, uh, in Budagaya, where he was going to stay at the, the Thai monastery for a while, he heard that there was an English monk, uh, Sangrakuta by name, in Kaningpong. So he and my Thai bhikkhu friend Vivekananda came together to see me. Kantipalo spent altogether three years in India, and out of those three years, one year was spent with me, not in one instalment. There were two very lengthy instalments, and this one uh, original short meeting at the Triyana Bharatana Vihara. Um, as I think Ratnagosha has already mentioned, Kantipalo at that time was about well, ten years younger than me. Well, he's still ten years younger than me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I remember him very well. He, uh, he was quite a bit taller than me. He was rather angular, and he was rather awkward in his movements. Um, he had a very high forehead. He had a regular dome of a head. Uh, but I soon found he was very, very sincere, very, very willing to learn he himself, in the course of the book, says somewhere that as a young man he was very conceited. Um, well, that's for him to say, but I certainly didn't notice any trace of conceit uh, during the time that he was with me. He was very, yes, very humble in a way, very willing to learn, very receptive, very helpful, very cooperative. I found all these, these virtues in him. And uh, yes, we did develop something of a friendship. Um, he spent, I think, about six months with me uninterruptedly on one occasion in Kalimpong. It was uh, partly during the rainy season 
And it was also at that time that we paid regular visits, regular weekly visits, to one of my teachers, that is to say, to Yogi Chen, about whom some of you may have heard. Yogi Chen lived as a hermit on the outskirts of the Kalimpong Bazaar and spent most of his time in meditation. He allowed himself half an hour a day in which to write, and in this way he produced quite a lot of books. Um, I was already visiting him quite frequently, I think even once a week. I think it was on Saturdays. Uh, he didn't usually allow visitors, but I, I was privileged. I was allowed to, to see him whenever I wished. So I took Kantipalo to meet him, because uh, Yogi Chen was a great meditator and very deeply versed in the Dharma, and I thought it was good that Kantipalo should become acquainted with him. By the way, perhaps I should mention that Kantipalo was not then called Kantipalo. He became Kantipalo when he became a fully ordained monk or bhikkhu. He was then called Sujiva, the well or happily living one, which I felt was quite appropriate. So we had many discussions with Yogi Chen, and uh, to cut a long story short, eventually Yogi Chen offered to give Kantipalo and myself a series of lectures, just for the two of us, on the subject of meditation. Hinayana, <coughs> Mahayana, Vajrayana, Chen, the whole field of Buddhist meditation in which he was deeply versed. So, week by week, we went along. Yogi Chen prepared his talk, his discourse, very carefully, and for one hour, we listened. Conti Paolo made very extensive notes, and when we got back to the Vihara, he wrote and typed them out. He showed them to me. I made suggestions, corrections. We checked them with Yogi Chen. And in this way, a book was produced, which was eventually published as Meditation Systematical and Practical. So, Conti Paolo and I worked together, collaborated together in this way at that time, uh, during uh, his stay at the Triyana Vardhana Vihara. And incidentally, in the course of his book, he gives a quite engaging picture of our life at the Vihara. And I must say, when it was read to me uh, very recently, I was a bit shocked. <laughs> because we were living so simply. And our food was very simple. Contibolo doesn't exactly complain about the food, but he clearly did find it very, very simple. Simple, very, very <laughs> sparse, even, indeed. And, of course, we didn't usually eat after 12 o'clock. Yeah? Um, so I, I hadn't realised just how simply, how austerely, you know, we were living, how I was living at that particular time. And it was something of, uh, well, yes, an eye-opener. It wasn't perhaps surprising that when I returned to England after 20 years... I weighed only eight and a half stone. Huh? <laughs> yes. I'm a little more than that now. Hmm? Um, so yes, Kantipala writes about that uh, period of his stay in India, his time with me at the Vijana Varasana Vihara, very, very engagingly. Hmm? But um, I also took him on tour with me among the Indian Buddhists who had recently converted to Buddhism uh, under the guidance of Dr. Ambedkar. And uh, he assisted me greatly in the course of one of my very extensive tours, in the course of which I visited dozens, even scores of towns and villages, and gave many, many lectures 
for the benefit of these newly uh, converted uh, Buddhists. In fact, um, in Pune, we, we held a training course for newly converted Buddhists for some, might have been about 50 of them. And the training course lasted uh, one month and uh, the courses were held in the evenings because everybody was working, everybody had a full-time job. Uh, but that was a, a quite a historic occasion, quite a milestone. And at least one person was present on that occasion, I think it was in 60 or 61, who afterwards uh, became a member of the Western Buddhist order, or Trilokya uh, Bodha Mahasangha, uh, but who recently, unfortunately, died at a quite advanced age. So I had this contact with Kantipalo, he had this contact with me, both in Kalimpong at the Triyana Fasana Bihara and also on tour, on my, on my lecture tour or preaching tour among the newly converted Indian Buddhists. So we did have a very good, um, even a quite deep contact. And uh, he has written about this uh, in a very engaging way. He also writes, of course, about his impressions of India. He writes about the time he spent in Nepal, where he met uh, people that I had met many years earlier. So the book as a whole is very, uh, very readable, and I hope that quite a few of you will find time uh, to go through it. Hmm? Um, but this is, as it were, uh, by, by the way, um, I've mentioned, yes, that I have finished my memoirs, uh, the most recent volume. I've mentioned that uh, Kantipalu's book fills a gap, fortunately. And uh, now that my memoirs are finished, I have, of course, much more time for reflection, and meditation and so on than I had while I was working on the memoirs, especially during the period that I was uh, obliged to dictate the last ten chapters. So uh, what have I been reflecting on? What have I been thinking about? Well, just a couple of weeks ago, I was in Birmingham at uh, Majmaloka, and I was sitting out on my uh, patio, in the sunshine, yes, in the sunshine. <laughs> and uh, I started thinking about creativity. Hmm? For some reason or other, thoughts about creativity uh, started coming into my mind. And I thought, well, perhaps it wouldn't be a bad idea if I, I shared some of these thoughts about creativity uh, with um, some of my friends, some of the, the people you know, within the movement. Uh, so my first thought was, well, why not, uh, why not go down to London? Yeah? Why not share them with uh, you know, people attending the LBC, who are always so receptive and enthusiastic <laughs> and who always give me such a wonderful welcome? So I made a phone call or two, and very smoothly, very efficiently, of course, it was all arranged. <laughs> so, so here I am. And of course, also launching here, Kanjipalu's book. So I'm, to use a very un expression, 
killing two birds with one stone. <laughs> uh, so anyway, now for the second stone. Uh, creativity. One of the things that occurred to me, one of the thoughts that occurred to me was that um, nowadays we use this term creative you know, rather loosely. It's been rather debased, rather vulgarized. Some time ago I heard of something called creative accounting. <laughs> well, it used to be called falsification. <laughs> But it's become creative. Huh? All sorts of things have become creative, you know. You sort of, you get a sheet of paper and you scribble on it a bit and, well, you're being creative, apparently. You could even win a prize, huh? Who knows, huh? So this term, creative, and the term creativity, huh? these terms have become, you know, rather overworked. They've become clichés. They've lost much of their significance. So I was just trying to think you know, what it really meant to be creative, what creativity really meant. Um, I don't want to spend too much on this topic because it is rather abstract. I want to get on to something uh, more concrete uh, as soon as I can. And let's just linger for a, for a few minutes on this question of well, what is creativity? Um, creativity, we could say, means producing something new, bringing something new into existence. But it isn't just that, because everything that is new is not necessarily creative, even though what is creative is new, or that creativity does consist in the bringing into existence of, of something which is new, or if you like, something which is original. Of course, People nowadays also set great store by being original. But you can't really be original by taking thought. Um, that sort of original originality is a, is a false, it's an artificial originality. It's not the real thing. You can only be original, you can only produce something original if you are original. Hmm? That doesn't mean being eccentric. Hmm? Uh, it means, in a way, being yourself. It means being in, in touch with yourself, knowing who and what you are, having or developing insights, vision, having imagination. If you can be yourself in that way, well, you will be creative in the sense of producing something original, something which partakes of the nature of creativity. So I think it's quite important, you know, to understand this. Well, so much for the, the more abstract aspect of the topic. What I want to go into now, and I, th I think this is quite important, and perhaps in some ways the crux of my talk this evening, I want to go into the different fields of creativity, the different areas within which creativity manifests itself, or the different areas in which we are creative, or the different ways in which we are creative, different ways in which creativity manifests. The first is, of course, the rather obvious one of the arts. Hmm? Music, poetry, literature in general, film, the visual arts, painting, sculpture, 
these are all at their best manifestations of creativity. They are original in the sense that they are the products, the expressions of someone's genuine, original, actually experienced vision, imagination, insight even. So there's artistic creativity. I, I need not press this point. It's a pretty obvious one. And then, something which is perhaps less obvious, the second area of field of creativity is meditation. Hmm? Meditation. Well, some of you may think of meditation as hard slog. Yeah? But actually, meditation is creativity. When you're meditating, you're being creative. So, the point of this is, well, when you meditate, what are you creating? Well, you're creating thoughts, in a way, or at least mental states, mental events. Of course, skillful. Hmm? Kusala, mental states or mental events. You are bringing them into existence. Hmm? Previously, of course, those were rather a mixture. Perhaps there were many unskillful thoughts passing through your mind, or at least wandering thoughts, dispersed thoughts, unconcentrated thoughts. But when you meditate, you bring into existence a succession of skillful or wholesome kusala mental states and mental events. And the more deeply you go in, in meditation, or the more meditative you become, the more continuous does that stream of positive mental events which you are producing become. So meditation, in this sense, is a highly creative activity. You are bringing into existence and hopefully sustaining in existence something which is positive, something which is wholesome, something which is skillful. And with experience you can do this uninterruptedly, or at least with only intermittent breaks. <coughs> and when I say uninterruptedly, I don't mean that you're doing it just when you're sitting on your meditation cushion. Um, ideally, you do it with the help of awareness, whatever you are doing, that your mental state, your sequence of mental events is skillful, not unskillful. <coughs> you are constantly, whatever you are doing, bringing into existence is positive, is skillful, these really creative mental states and mental events. So I think it's important that we think of meditation, not just in the way that we usually do, but think of meditation as a creative activity, as one of the most creative activities in which we can possibly engage. This creation of an uninterrupted series or sequence of positive mental events. Whatever we're doing, whether we're on a cushion or whether we're moving about in the world. So this is meditation as creativity or creativity as meditation. We could also, of course, more specifically refer to some of the Mahayana and Vajrayana meditation practices in which we <coughs> use our imagination. We're being very creative. For instance, when we visualize the pure land, 
or when we visualize the figure of Avalokiteshvara or Manjugosha or Padmasambhava or Tara and so on. That is a much more specialized form of meditation as creativity and this of course does have tremendous emotional and spiritual value for those who engage in this particular type of meditative practice or sadhana as we call it. All right, now we'll go on to the the third area within which creativity manifests itself. (coughs) Um, And that is the area of friendship. Now, perhaps we don't always think or don't often think of meditation, uh, sorry, a friendship as being something creative. We don't think of creativity uh, as such manifesting within the field or the area of friendship. But um, when two people meet and when two people become friends, and especially when they become spiritual friends, well, what happens? Well, they, they have an influence on each other. They produce something between them. They produce between them a relationship, an experience, a mental state, which we call that of friendship, meta. The English word <coughs> friendship, of course, is rather weak. Even the word meta, even kalyana meta, is perhaps a rather weak expression for the kind of experience uh, that you can bring into existence between you when two friends get together and especially when communication between them is deep and honest and sincere and intense. A lot can happen within the context of a friendship as I'm sure many of you know. Um, As you interact with your friend uh, with openness and with honesty um, rough edges get smooth you know, corners get rounded off. And perhaps more importantly even, you learn perhaps to do for your friend or for the sake of your friend what you would not perhaps hardly even do for yourself. And in this way, friendship becomes what I've called somewhere in the past a sort of mutual transcendence of of egoism. Shantideva, of course, sheds a lot of light on this sort of uh, situation in his uh, Bodhicharya uh, Avatara. And if, of course, you get a number of people, several people, you know, in a relationship of mutual friendship, well, something very great and very precious, you know, can be produced. I remember reading many years ago in in Aristotle, I think it was in Aristotle's Ethics, that friendship is something which is possible only between the virtuous. Now by the virtuous he didn't mean the Hmm? (laughs) goody-goody. Aristotle, uh, like other Greeks, wasn't interested in that sort of virtue. We mustn't forget that virtue means something like excellence. And uh, when Aristotle said that friendship, true friendship is possible only you know, between the virtuous, he meant something like the fact that in order to be truly friends, you must have something, some principle, some ideal 
on which the friendship is based uh, in the context of a Buddhism, in the context of the Dharma, Kalyana Mitrata is, is based essentially on the fact that both parties concerned are living and working for the Dharma, are committed to the Dharma, are dedicated to the Dharma. That is the basis upon which the, the friendship is, is founded. So the friends are therefore, the spiritual friends especially, helping each other you know, to engage more deeply with that common dharma to which both of them are dedicated and committed. So in this way there comes about what I've called that mutual transcendence of self, of separativeness. So in this way, friendship becomes a manifestation of, of creativity. Something new is brought into existence in the field of human relations. Friendship is something unique. If you have a real friendship with someone, you get from that friendship something you don't get from your relationship with your parents or with your, from your relationship with your employer or your relationship, say, with your children or your relationship with your sexual partner, you get something completely different, something completely new, something unique, which unfortunately nowadays very, very few people in the world at large seem to have any experience of. So this is the, the third area, the third arena, in a way, within which creativity manifests itself, within that of friendship. And uh, then there's the fourth and last one, and this may surprise you, it might even shock you. Uh, the fourth one is institutions. Oh, groans all round. Huh? <laughs> uh, the word institution has rather a bad press, hasn't it? Huh? It has rather a bad press, even within the FWBO, in some areas at least. Huh? But really, we shouldn't be misled by that. Institutions are very important. Without institutions, there's no civilization, and there's no culture. Everything that is alive is organized. This organization means death. If you look at a plant, it's organized, it has a structure. And uh, when the plant dies, when it's deprived of water, when it withers, uh, what happens? It disintegrates. So long as it has life, it has structure, it has organization. It's the same, obviously, with the human being. So long as we are alive, well, we are a structure. We are a, a structure of bones and blood and flesh and phlegm and bile, and all the other things you know, mentioned in the uh, uh, contemplation of the you know, ten stages of the decomposition of a corpse. Yeah? Um, but when we die, what happens? We, the body becomes disorganized. Yeah? It reverts to the, the elements of which it consists and from which it was originally drawn. So that which is alive is organized. 
if you're not organized, you're, you're not alive. So the organization uh, within the uh, context of civilization and, and culture is a very important development, a very important manifestation of creativity. And it takes usually a lot of people to bring an institution into existence and it takes a long time for them to do it, a long time for the institution to develop within itself sufficient life, sufficient energy, sufficient vitality for it to be able to endure and survive under changing circumstances. So we do see in the world all sorts of organizations, all sorts of institutions. And uh, among them, of course, there is the FWPO. I think we need not hesitate to refer to the, the FWPO as an institution, despite the fact that um, the word has unpleasant connotation for some people. I can't think of any other word. If someone could think of a better word, I'd be very glad to hear it. Huh? But the FWBO is something, as you know, that has been built up, created over the years. So many people have put their creativity into it. Well, you could say the, the LBC, the London Buddhist Centre, which we originally used to refer to as Sukhavati, is an institution. Hmm? So much energy went into its creation. So many people committed themselves to the creation of a London Buddhist Centre, from which so many people over the years have benefited. I can remember, when was it? 30 years ago, roughly, or maybe, no, it was less than that. Um, 20 odd years ago, there were, well, there were some 30 odd men working on this semi-derelict <coughs> old fire station and transforming it over a period of some two, two and a half years into our present London Buddhist Centre. And this was a great creative achievement. We mustn't think of it just as bringing into existence an institution in the ordinary, rather negative sense of the term, but the creation of something valuable, something important, something beautiful, <coughs> something which should be of great benefit you know, to, to numbers of people. So we, we have the FWPO also as an institution. We have the LBC as an institution. We have many other FWPOs, all of them in their own way, institutions, team-based right livelihood, businesses, chapters, um, communities. I mean, these are all our institutions, and we put our creative energy into them. So these are these four areas, I would say, within which um, creativity manifests. Obviously, there's the arts, then there's meditation, then there's friendship, especially spiritual friendship, and finally, there are institutions, especially those which we ourselves are in process of, of building up. So I, I would say that um, in the course of my own life, I have been, uh, been quite fortunate. Um, in the course of my reflections you know, over the last few weeks, I've been wondering, among other things, uh, how I could characterize my life if I was asked, you know, 
to be you know, quite objective and to look back at my life as though it was somebody else's life and try to characterize it. I, I was asking myself, well, what would I say? You know, how would I characterize it? Um, one of the things that um, I thought was, well, in some ways that means, well, how would I characterize myself? And it occurred to me that if I was asked, and if I had to be quite objective and honest, I wouldn't say that, um, on the whole, I was a religious-minded person. Um, that is to say, not religious-minded in the conventional sense. I don't, think, I don't think I've ever been a pious person. And in fact, um, I don't think I'd like to be described uh, as well, a religious person. It seems to have all the wrong sort of connotations. So how would I describe myself looking back on my life? Well, I think I'd like to describe myself as a creative person. I would like to think that I was someone whose life was dominated by, or whose life was an, uh, an expression of creativity, hmm? even if only in a relatively small way. After all, I've, I've written quite a bit of poetry, I've written quite a few volumes of memoirs, I know that not everybody in the FWB appreciates my poetry. <laughs> I'm quite well aware of that. I'm quite well aware of the fact that it's in some quarters considered rather old-fashioned and non-experimental. But never mind, I've written it. <laughs> I've expressed myself through that particular medium. So I can, so yes, justly say I think I've been creative in that way, whatever the objective value of that particular creation of mine may be. Yeah? And then, of course, yes, I've had the good fortune to come into contact with very good spiritual teachers, spiritual friends, <coughs> people like Yogi Chen, for instance. And I've had the opportunity of taking up meditation, having meditative, meditative experience, including the experience of those sadhanas which I've mentioned. So in this respect also, my life has been uh, a creative life, an expression of creativity, and then, of course, I've been fairly fortunate in my friendships. I think I consider this one of the great blessings of my life, that uh, I have had, both in India and in the West, many good friends. Some have been friends for decades now. Um, some, sadly, have uh, departed this life. Huh? Um, Dr. Johnson famously said it's important to keep one's friendships in repair. It's important to keep in contact with one's friends, especially one's old friends, not to lose contact, to keep in contact by one means or another. And I think I have tried to, to do that. So I have a number of good old friends, and I'm glad to say that even in my old age, I seem to be making some new good friends <coughs> as well. So yes, um, I have had uh, experience of creativity in that form too. And of course, the, when we come to um, institutions, the question of institutions, yes, I think I can say I've played a significant part in the creation of the, the FWBO. Now, of course, I've been able to hand on uh, many responsibilities to the, the College of Preceptors and to the Council, and they are continuing that work of creativity, as in fact uh, are all those who are in one way or another involved with the Western Buddhist order and with the friends of the Western Buddhist order. We are all engaged in one great creative endeavor manifesting itself 
and in many cases in the creation of our institutions. So I consider myself you know, very, very fortunate that I have been able to lead a life of creativity in this way. And I think I can also say that um, a creative life is a happy life. I think if you're being creative, whatever the difficulties, you are happy. Um, if you're painting a picture, you may be experiencing all sorts of technical difficulties. You may be tempted to give up even. Yeah? Same with writing a poem. But deep down, you're very, very happy. Yeah? Creativity is a very positive experience. While you are creating, you are happy. And I would also say that if, uh, if uh, someone is not creating, not creating anything, not creating in any way, or creating only in a very, very limited sort of way, then the likelihood is that you're not very happy. To be creative is to be happy. But creative in this, this broader sense, which I've tried to describe. Now, uh, thinking about creativity, um, it occurs to me that in an early talk I spoke of uh, mind creative and mind reactive. Hmm? I think <coughs> most of you have heard this, this talk on tape or, or read it in uh, the little book that has now come out called, uh, you know, Buddha Mind. Um, I've described creative mind as being the mind that is independent, hmm? the mind that is uh, spontaneous, uh, the mind that is aware. And uh, in the same way, I've described the reactive mind as the mind that is reactive, that doesn't originate anything, that just reacts. <coughs> And the, the uh, reactive mind is therefore the uh, dependent mind. It is the repetitive mind. It is the mechanical mind. I've gone into all this, uh, I think, in some detail in this particular <coughs> talk and perhaps on other occasions. Um, but thinking about these things, it occurred to me recently that um, I could add another characteristic or epithet um, to uh, the to the reactive mind, that the reactive mind is not just reactive, eh? not just repetitive, not just mechanical, <coughs> not even just unaware. It's something else. The reactive mind is not just non-creative. The reactive mind can be anti-creative. The uh, reactive mind can be destructive. Hmm? And this put me in mind of something I'd been reading recently, or rather, something to which I had been listening recently, hmm? on cassette. And this was to uh, Ted Hughes' translation and reading of that great old, old English or Anglo-Saxon epic, Beowulf. I don't know how many people are familiar with Beowulf, but it's well worth being familiar with. And uh, 
is illustrative of what I'm talking about now, or of a certain aspect of it. The, uh, the poem, it seems, as far as I can make out, was f written down in the, the 10th century. I believe there's only one surviving manuscript. But um, it seems it was composed, perhaps orally, in about the 8th century, and relates to happenings which probably occurred in the 5th or 6th century, as far as I can make out. Hmm? The scholars probably differ you know, from one another on all these points. Hmm? And uh, the story of the epic, at least the first half of the epic, is set in, it seems, what is now Denmark. And uh, it begins with a description of the descent of the then king of the Danes. The Danes, it seems, were called shieldings for some reason <coughs> or other. And uh, the, the, the poem relates, I think, four or five or more generations of kings down to the king who was reigning at the time of this particular story. The king, it seems, was uh, very famous. He attracted many young men into his service. He was a just ruler. He accumulated great riches. And one day he decided to build a great, a magnificent hall. And he sent for architects and artists from all over the world. This couldn't have been very historical, but anyway, this is what the poem says. Perhaps we'll see the significance of this in a moment. And uh, this great hall was built, this enormous hall. And the poem describes it as a wonder of the world. And it describes how it was adorned inside and outside with gold. And it glittered, you know, from afar. And it was the most magnificent building at that time in the whole world, we, we are told. So clearly, the building this great hall comes to have a sort of, we might say, even archetypal significance. And it's, it's referred to as a mead hall, the hall in which the warriors, you know, gathered to drink mead, to rejoice, to celebrate. And we're also told that when this uh, hall was inaugurated, the first time it was used when the king was there with all his men, the queen was there, the, the minstrel started singing, the court poet started singing, and his song was of creation, yeah? the creation of the sun and the moon, the creation of the earth and of all living things. So it seems to me, the first time I, I read, because it was many years ago, the first time I read this poem, when I came to this passage, I felt, well, here is something of great archetypal significance. It's almost as though this great hall adorned with gold that the king has built represents the whole structure of civilization and culture of the whole of humanity. It's what we've built up, the values that we've created over the centuries since the dawn of history. It seems to me to have that sort of significance. So the story goes on that there was great feasting and rejoicing in the hall. And everyone was pleased, everyone was happy. I say everyone, but there was someone who was not happy. 
someone who didn't like to, to see that great hall, who didn't like to hear the rejoicing, didn't like to hear the song of the minstrel. And that was a demon, a monster, called Grendel. Now I don't know what the <coughs> word Grendel, the name Grendel means, but it has a very harsh sound. It, to, my, to my mind it has a sound as of the, the gnashing or grinding of teeth, Grendel. Yeah? <laughs> so Grendel, this demon, this monster, who is described as being descended from Cain, who murdered his brother Abel in the Old Testament, this monster was not at all happy yeah, to hear the feasting and the singing. So one night he crept <coughs> up, he broke down the door of the hall and he, he slaughtered 30 of the, the men who were sleeping there that night and took them away to eat them, to devour them. So after that, night after night, he came and pillaged and wrecked that hall so that, um, well, it became deserted. People could not feast, could not make merry there, could not hear the song of the minstrel there anymore. There's just another, a little significant detail. The hall was also the throne room of the king, and we're told, in a rather mysterious way, that Grindel <coughs> was kept from the throne. Hmm? Now, that has, I'm sure, a deep significance. I may go into it some other time, but we'll leave that aside for the moment. But we're told that for, for, for 12 years, Grendel was visiting that hall and despoiling it so that it could not be used. And word of this spread you know, quite widely uh, throughout the area, spread even to distant countries. And again, to cut a long story short, the hero, Beowulf, comes from the land of the Geats, which seems to be not very far away, perhaps in southern, uh, southern Sweden, and uh, he and his men sleep in that hall. Grendel comes. He kills one man, but then he comes to Beowulf, and Beowulf has in his hands the strength of 30 men. So he seizes Grendel's arm and doesn't let go, and Grendel is so desperate to, to get away that, uh, well, he leaves his arm behind. Beowulf winches it off. So, again, <coughs> there is feasting and there is music and there is singing in the hall. But that's not the end of the story because Grendel has a mother. We're not told her name. She's just referred to as Grendel's mother. <laughs> and she lives where Grendel also used to live at the bottom of a deep, dark pool in the midst of a very sinister sort of forest away up in the mountains. So she is you know, very upset that her, her son has lost his arm and died as a result. So she comes again to, to the hall and um, she snatches away the king's close friend and favourite advisor and then she gets away before Beowulf can catch hold of her. So what does Bear, the next day, next morning Beowulf and the king they, they follow her track and they discover you know, this, this, this deep, this black lake 
overshadowed by rocks and trees deep in the forest. And Beowulf plunges down into the depths where he kills Grendel's mother. So this, this is, I'm dwelling a little on some details, but I think there was some significance. Grendel is defeated in the hall. He comes to the hall and he's defeated there. But in order to defeat Grendel's mother, Beowulf has to track her and go down into those depths, as though she represents a force even more primordial huh? than, than, uh, than Grendel himself. So I, I, I'm, I'm mentioning this. I, I, I'm dwelling on this episode in the story of Beowulf, uh, and this is only half the story, by the way. There's another half where Beowulf uh, fights and kills a dragon and is killed himself at the same time 50 years later. Yeah? So uh, I'm using this just as an illustration, as it were, of the fact that the reactive mind can be destructive. Hmm? Grendel, we can say, represents or even symbolizes or embodies that aspect of the reactive mind, which is not only not creative, but is even opposed to creativity. And uh, we can see this operating on or within all the, the different uh, fields of creativity um, which I've mentioned. Or take, for instance, the arts. In what way does the destructive, reactive mind you know, operate here? Well, we could say it is um, through the the, uh, the carpings of uh, small-minded critics who can't appreciate true greatness. Uh, I remember in this connection quite recently, I was listening uh, to some of the, the music... Uh, of uh, Richard Strauss. People have been very kindly giving me CDs of the music of Richard <coughs> Strauss to which I've been listening. And uh, one of his compositions is called The Life of a Hero. And in the opening movement you get the sort of hero theme. And uh, in the second movement, or what appears to be the second <coughs> movement, you get all sorts of sound, all sorts of odd little sounds. Huh? Um, little sort of sharp, quavering sort of sounds, which, according to the program note, represents the, the critics who were criticising <laughs> uh, Richard Strauss, you know, for his uh, music. So you always get, you know, those sort of people. Of course, if you're criticised, it doesn't mean that you're a genius. <laughs> but uh, a genius may be criticised, which is another matter. Yeah? So in the field of the arts, you get this this sort of niggling criticism. Huh? You get in other fields also, of course. But then I, th I think um, where the destructive force operates perhaps most is within the life, within the, the psyche, if you like, the soul of the artist himself. Some artists <coughs> begin to compromise. They start off very well. They're inspired. Perhaps they are geniuses. But then they start compromising. They want success. And uh, therefore they start supplying the public with what the public wants. In other words, with what will sell. Because perhaps they've got all sorts of domestic responsibilities and commitments or 
perhaps they want to build themselves a magnificent house and entertain in style, so they compromise. So this, we could say, is the, the working of that, that um, reactive mind uh, in its destructive aspect within the mind, within the psyche of the artist himself. Sometimes I think that the pre-Raphaelite painter Millet was an example of that sort of thing. He produced some really wonderful work in his early days, but towards the end of his life, though he did sometimes paint very fine pictures, he seemed to, to my mind at least, to compromise more and more with his public that wanted just pretty pictures, you know, like Winter's Bubbles. I don't know if you know that one. It's a good example, I think, of that kind of thing. And, of course, uh, writers do that too. Uh, some of you uh, may know that uh, very fine novel by George Gissing called uh, The New Grub Street, which tells the story of uh, a novelist, a literary man, who is set out, set out with great ideals but who gradually compromised and was writing for the sort of novel that the public wanted to read and which would therefore sell and bring him in a lot of money. Um, the old Grub Street, of course, was the street in which uh, hack writers lived. Who, who sold their pen, you know, to the highest bidder in the days of good old Samuel Johnson. So the new Grub Street illustrates, you know, this sort of thing. And then we come on to uh, well, meditation. Well, in what way does uh, this uh, anti-creative force manifest itself? I think I would say here that it manifests when meditation becomes just a matter of technique. When you think that if you get the right technique and you know, practice it regularly, even forcefully, even forcibly, then you're sure to obtain results. So, one can develop this sort of uh, attitude towards well, any particular kind of meditation practice. You can start seeing it as an end in itself, almost a sort of you know, magical solution to your problems, if you can only just go on doing it, however repetitively and however mechanically, even though it's lost whatever life was originally in the practice. So it's very important that we refresh our meditation <coughs> practice from, from time uh, to time. Um, I need hardly dwell on this. I think this particular question is you know, familiar to, to most of you. And then, of course, there's the, the question of how that uh, destructive impulse, this uh, anti-creative impulse, manifests in the sphere of friendship. Well, in the sphere of human relations generally. Hmm? I thought about this quite a bit recently and uh, I was recollecting uh, you know, what, for instance, uh, Aristotle also says about friendship being possible only between men who were free. Aristotle didn't think it possible for there to be friendship between um, a free man and a slave because a slave is a slave. He's not his own master. He's not independent. And in order to be a friend, you have to be independent. You both have to be independent. So the destructive element enters in when there is, when one, or one of the, 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 the friends is dependent on the other in an unhealthy sort of way, who hmm? so is no longer emotionally and spiritually free. And uh, sometimes it happens, uh, you know, even in a friendship, that one friend dominates even controls the other or even takes over the other, the life of the other in the life 
in, in the, the name in the interests of so-called friendship. But this is not true friendship. And one could also say that, you know, looking at the whole question from a, a broader point of view, um, that the same destructive element enters in when the, the individual is taken over by the group, when the individual is made to submit to the group, when the individual is swallowed up by the group, or perhaps even wants to be swallowed up by the group, to merge with the group. So this is where the destructive element, uh, the destructive uh, aspect of the reactive mind manifests <coughs> in the field of friendship and in fact of human relations generally. It can also, of course, uh, manifest in, in all sorts of, of other ways. And of course it can, it can manifest in the, uh, in the field of institutions. Here, that destructive aspect of the reactive mind manifests when, uh, well, to take a very obvious example, when, say, a universal religion becomes an ethnic religion. And of course this is a danger facing uh, all universal religions, whether it's Buddhism or Christianity or Islam. Hmm? There's always a sort of gravitational pull by virtue of which they are in danger of becoming uh, from universal religions, uh, ethnic religions. We have to be on our guard against that uh, all the time. So we can see that uh, what I've called the destructive aspect, uh, the anti-creative aspect of the reactive mind can operate in all these, these four fields which I have mentioned. But um, there's another way in which this, uh, another way in which this uh, reactive mind can be, can be characterized. It's not just destructive. You could say it's more than destructive in a way. You could even say it's devouring. Hmm? Um, I happen to be reflecting recently on William Blake. Blake, of course, is an excellent example of a truly great artist and poet, uh, a truly creative person, perhaps one of the most creative people that we've had in the course of uh, the, the history of English art and literature. Blake, in The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, distinguishes between the prolific and the devouring. I'm mainly concerned this evening with the devouring, but I'll say a few words about the prolific. Um, the prolific is that which is enormously and constantly, constantly <coughs> productive and creative. Um, Blake is also is concerned with other aspects social, economic, and so on. I'm not concerned with those. Um, I've noticed that many of the greatest artists, the greatest writers, were also very prolific. Hmm? Not turning out just one or two little masterpieces, but perhaps dozens. One thinks, for instance, of the great Greek dramatists, of Sophocles, of Euripides, and others. Well, according to <coughs> tradition, they each produced a hundred or more plays. Only a fraction, of course, survive, unfortunately. And then when we come down to modern times, when we come down, say, to the painters of the Renaissance, we think of people like Titian, Tintoretto, El Greco, Rembrandt, Rubens, you know, Michelangelo, 
They're so prolific. They're working all the time. Creating is happiness. They're working all the time. We come down to the great Elizabethans. We come down, for instance, to Shakespeare. Think how prolific Shakespeare was. Think how prolific, for instance, Goethe was. Think how prolific Dickens was. Think how prolific the great Russian novelists were. And if one goes to the East, well, one thinks, for instance, of a Sufi poet like Jalaluddin Rumi, how prolific he was. He was constantly producing, constantly creating, sometimes in a state of ecstasy, just dictating verse after verse after verse, thousands and thousands of verses. Couldn't stop. And uh, in modern times in <coughs> India, the great uh, Bengali poet, Rabindranath Tagore, think how endlessly creative he was. He not only produced an enormous amount of lyric poetry, but short stories, uh, novels, uh, plays. And as if that wasn't enough, in his old age he started painting. He produced about 2,000 paintings and he also composed and set to music 2,000 or so songs which are sung today all over India. So endlessly creative. So I've noticed that some of the greatest or many of the greatest artists and poets have been very, very creative. They've been prolific. And, uh, well, come on to meditation. Well, meditation can be prolific too. And they say, you know, one good turn deserves another, but one good thought, one skillful thought produces another. Uh, so the more, the more you uh, meditate, in the sense in which I've described, well, the more you are likely to, to meditate. But not just that. Uh, meditation is prolific in another way. Because if you are a meditator, if you are creative in that particular way, you can teach meditation. Hmm? So from, from, from you, other people can learn to meditate. When I started the, the FWBO, I was teaching um, mindfulness of breathing, and I was teaching the Metabhavana. Now since then, just because of the fact that I was not keeping my practice or experience of meditation to myself, but I was, was teaching it, well, hundreds, perhaps thousands of others have um, learned to meditate, have had meditative experience in that way. Um, meditation has become, one could say, uh, prolific. Uh, and not only, of course, within the FWBO, wherever you know, meditation is taught, there is that spread, there is that creation and recreation of a certain very positive state of mind. I remember, you know, back in the, uh, the 60s, we had something called transcendental meditation. Some of you may, be, may have been around at that time. I know some of you, uh, some of the older, older members uh, have probably, you know, come to us uh, after practicing transcendental meditation. Well, I don't think there was anything very transcendental about it, but what was very positive about it was that at that time, and subsequently, it popularized the practice of meditation. So we can be very grateful you know, to the old Maharishi, uh, Mahesh Yogi, you know, for, for doing that. So we could say that meditation is inherently prolific because you want, once you have a meditative experience, 
just as when you have another positive experience, a positive experience of any kind, <coughs> you want to share it with other people. So I'm, I'm very happy you know, to, 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 to learn that here at the LBC, the meditation classes are thriving, that meditation is being taught, that um, more and more people are learning to meditate, are learning to be creative in that particular way in their lives. And then what about friendship? Hmm? Um, isn't that prolific too? I was thinking about that and I thought, well, if you, if you make a friend, if you make a new friend, you, you like normally to introduce that friend to your old friend. Hmm? So in that way, a sort of network of friendships grows up. You introduce your new friend to your old friends, perhaps they introduce that new friend to other friends of theirs. And in that way, a whole network of friendships is created. And I know that sometimes we speak of the, the FWA itself as being fundamentally a network of friendships. Network, you might say, is another name for organization. A network of friendships of uh, people who are in that relationship of mutual friendship one with another. I'm reminded of that old uh, simile which we get in one of the Mahayana Suttas of a flame being lit from a, another flame. One flame being lit from another. The first flame doesn't lose anything yeah, by propagating itself in that way. And so in the same way uh, friendship you know, propagates itself. The flame of friendship passes from one person to another and then to another, until there are all these flames, as it were, burning brightly uh, together within what we might describe as the mandala of, uh, of friendship. But, uh, yes, I've rather gone a little out of my way. I hadn't intended to say quite as much about uh, the prolific. I was going to say more about the Vipara. As I mentioned, Blake says that in Marriage of Heaven and Hell, that there are two kinds of men, the prolific and the devouring. <coughs> so I was thinking about, well, devouring, devouring. Do we have anything corresponding to that aspect of the reactive, anti-creative mind? I thought, well, yes, we do. There's a very important word in Buddhism. I wonder if you can think of it. A word that occurs in the chain of the Nidanas, that is to say, the Nidanas uh, which are part of the wheel of life. And that word is Krishna, Krishna, craving. So, what, what is craving? Craving is the desire, the urge to devour. You want to swallow whether it's uh, another person, another idea, or a thing, or an object. It's, well, craving is the devourer. Hmm? So let's just, just have a few words about that before I start thinking of concluding. Uh, you'll remember, I'm sure, exactly where it comes in the Nidana chain. But perhaps I'd better remind you. Uh, <laughs> You have, of course, first of all, the, uh, the cause process of the past, uh, the past life, that is to say, 
that is to say you have um, avidya, ignorance, and the sankharas, the factors uh, conducing to rebirth. Huh? And then, of course, in this life, you have, first of all, you have the effect process of the present life. Hmm? Uh, you have, first of all, the jnana, in the sense of the seed of consciousness, which comes into being in the womb of the mother. Then, of course, you have uh, nama-rupa, the psychophysical organism that comes into existence in dependence upon that vijnana, that initial consciousness. And then in dependence upon that, you have the six sense organs, including mind. And then you have contact, contact with an external <coughs> object, physical or mental. And then you have vedana, feeling, pleasant, painful or neutral. Hmm? End of result process. Hmm? But not the end of that chain, because what usually happens is in dependence upon feeling, especially pleasurable feeling that arises thirst or craving. You want to devour that pleasant experience, that pleasant person, that pleasant idea, that pleasant possession. You want to, to have it. So in dependence upon Krishna craving that arises upadana, clinging. Yeah? I need not trace the process any, any further. The point I want to make is and I've made it before, and you must have come across this before, that this is a very crucial point. The point at which the result process of the present passes over into the cause process of the present. What we have to do is to maintain our awareness, and when we experience Vedana, whether pleasant, painful, or neutral, we have to be careful not to react. Huh? We mustn't allow the reactive mind to co come into operation. We must be creative. We must respond. And especially when we experience dukkha, when we experience suffering, well in dependence upon that we should try to develop shraddha or faith. Now when we are enjoying ourselves we don't usually think very much. That is to say, enjoying ourselves in the ordinary way. We don't stop and ask, well, why am I enjoying myself? Why should I be enjoying? Why should I be so happy? Why should I be in such a good state? No, we don't. Hmm. That sort of state, that sort of condition is not one that is conducing to the asking of philosophical questions. <laughs> but, you know, when we experience pain, when we experience suffering, yeah, whether it's uh, physical suffering, illness, uh, old age, you know, decrepitude, huh? um, or when we're parted you know, from those whom we love, especially when they die, or when we are faced with unpleasant experiences of loss of another kind, we start thinking, huh? we start reflecting. And I've noticed this happening quite a lot within the, the movement and within the order recently, because many people within the FWO are now of an age when, well, their, when their parents die. Um, so there have been many reminders of rec recently, in the course of the last few months, uh, reminders that, well, life can hold some quite painful experiences. We can suffer. That human life inevitably involves suffering. So suffering makes us think, we start thinking, well, why am I suffering? Hmm? 
Why is this? And perhaps we start thinking that, well, there must be, be something more than this present life of alternate happiness and enjoyment, you know, suffering and pleasure. And uh, when we start thinking in that way, we, we start lifting our mind to what well, is something higher, for want of a better term, uh, to higher values, to something more truly satisfying. And in Buddhist terms, uh, our aspiration eventually comes to rest on what we call the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha, and faith in the sense of the placing of our heart on the three jewels arises. In this way, we, make the first, we take the first step out of the round and up the spiral, which leads eventually to enlightenment. So, as I'm sure all of you know, or at least have read from time to time, in dependence upon faith that arises a feeling of a sort of joyous contentment, a deeper, more heartfelt uh, satisfaction. And then the independence from that, there may even arise a state of experience which is, so to speak, ecstatic, a very intense sort of bubbling joy and happiness. And independence upon that that arises an even loftier experience which consists in the the calming down of the previous experience without a lessening of its intensity. And in this way we come to experience what you call sukha or bliss, a truly blissful experience. And we then become concentrated, samadhi. And when we're concentrated we're able to, to see things as they really are. To see things as they really are. And that really does constitute a tremendous turning point in our whole spiritual life. From then onwards, the attainment of enlightenment, we might say, is certain. So we've covered quite a lot of ground, haven't we? And, uh, well, we've got rather a long way from Vikul Kantipal and his book, Noble Friendship. Hmm? But uh, in a way, we haven't. We haven't, not really. Uh, those, who have you, those of you who have... Uh, heard me speak before, know that very often after these long day tours I come back to the original point. Contipalo was a quite remarkable person. Uh, perhaps I should mention that after his three years in, uh, in, uh, in India, he spent, I think it was about 12 years in, uh, in Thailand as a fully ordained monk. He then moved to Australia, set up... Uh, a meditation centre, and a few years ago he decided he didn't want to be a bhikkhu anymore, and um, he broadened out his spiritual approach, and uh, now is is uh, running uh, a Buddhist centre in North East Australia. So, looking over Kantipalo's life, uh, I think I can say that well, his life too was a life of creativity just as mine has been. And I think his life on the whole, therefore, has been a happy life, uh, a fulfilling life. Um, in the first place, of course, yes, he's, he's been productive. He's written a number of books uh, on poetry. He's written this book. So yes, his creativity too has expressed itself in, in literary terms. 
And then again, he, he is a person with considerable experience of meditation. He's been creative in that way too. And he is a person who has made many friends. And of course, as you know, his book itself is called Noble Friendship. And uh, it is in part about his friendship with me, his friendship with my old friend Buddha Akita, who was his teacher for a while, and his friendship with my old friend Vivekananda, the, the Taipiku, who was one of my closest friends at that time. And then, of course, Kantipalo had other friendships in Bangkok and in Australia. So he was creative in that respect too. And uh, I could even say he's been creative in the, the sphere of institutions because when he was a bhikkhu, he created uh, a quite important retreat center near Sydney and is now engaged in the creation of the Bodhicitta Centre, as I said, in northeastern Australia. So, uh, I think that Kantipalu's um, life, as I've said, like my own, has been a life of creativity. And therefore, I'm very pleased to see the appearance of this book of his, entitled Noble Friendship. And I, I hope that many of you uh, will be able to find time to, to read it and of course to purchase it. I always have to mention these little practical details and the publishers are always jogging my elbow and uh, reminding me that well I must mention this and mention that and one of the things I've been asked to mention is that the book is illustrated. <laughs> that there are photographs of Conti Parlo, there's a picture of Dardo Rinpoche whom we also met and uh, there's a picture of uh, him with me and Vivekananda. There's a picture of Dujon Rinpoche, whom he met. There's a picture of my Vihara in Kalimpong. <laughs> oh, there's, there's another picture of me. <laughs> and, uh, oh, yes, there's a picture of Buddha where Kantipalu spent so much time. There's a picture of the hmm, aging Kantipalu, I must say, because he's ten years younger than me. And there's a, pro a picture of a procession. Um, I don't know on what occasion, uh, among the, the Indian Buddhists uh, among whom we travelled. Huh? And of course I, I have also to inform you that the price of the book is, I believe it's £11.99, just a mere trifle obviously. <laughs> so uh, I heartily recommend the book to you. And I'm very glad to have the opportunity of showing my friendship uh, to my old friend Kantipalu by launching his book here and uh, in other places. I must say that um, read, uh, reading the book or having um, it read to me, I was quite touched uh, to find uh, um, how deeply uh, Kantipala had been uh, um, affected by the, the, the time he spent with me and the way in which he remembered me with so much affection and appreciation I was very much touched by this, especially as over the years we haven't had much communication. It's only during the last four or five years, perhaps, that we've again been in, uh, in regular correspondence. So I was quite touched and quite moved by some parts of this book, and I hope you will be too. We hope you enjoyed the talk. Please come and help us keep this free at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash community. And thank you.